I remember growing up with my brother who was often more, if you can imagine, more mischievous than I was. Uh, when he was into something, he always wanted me to be on watch. Um, uh, you know, being his little brother and wanting to stay in with the cool guys who were much older than me, I would happily do that. Um, every once in a while, though, I would not comply and there would be a cost. Um, but uh, he appreciated a heads up when we were kids. Uh, uh, don't you appreciate, uh, uh, for example, it could be in military where soldiers are prepared for an upcoming attack. It could be a friend who has your back. It, it could be a good coach preparing you for a game. A good parent certainly tries to prepare their children. Hey, heads up, you know. I, I can still hear my dad. My dad would talk to me like Fred Sanford. You know, hey, dummy, heads up. Uh, he would definitely regularly call me, call me and my brother that, not in an ugly way, but just like, hey, knucklehead. You need to get your, get your eyes up, pay attention to what's going on. Uh, he, my family were all loggers, and so if you worked with him, you had to pay attention. You might get run over, or a tree would hit you, and it, it, some people did get hit. And so I remember and appreciate that, that always around me growing up. Um, we, when we take a trustworthy heads up to heart, we do well. And uh, I remember, again, when I was operating a huge piece of equipment and came close to flipping that piece of equipment over, my cousin caught me just in time over the CB radio and gave me heads up about what was I had. If you ever, if you're familiar with a skitter, it has a grapple on the back, it has logs in the back, and I had too much on it. And as I was swinging in to drop it towards the loader, it was about to flip me because I had too much weight on it. And he stopped me just in time. I could have crashed into him, did serious damage, probably even hurt and really hurt myself. Because that, just to be honest, sometimes we don't wear the seatbelts like we're supposed to. Uh, I was so grateful for that. Can you think of a time when someone helped you with a timely heads up? Maybe you can think in your own head when someone gave you a very timely heads up. I'm sure you can this morning. But let me tell you this morning, one of the greatest heads up moments in the Bible, and he did it multiple times, is Jesus. And if you know the Gospels, you know it. He, he said it many times. I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over, but I'm going to be raised. And if it was not, when it was not taken seriously, if it had been taken seriously, the disciples could have missed a lot, of, a lot of grief. The truth of his resurrection became the very focus of their lives going forward because it still served as a great preparation for their lives going forward, though. They knew no matter what, I need to remember, he already told me this. He told me he was going to be raised. He was raised, and I can trust him going forward. So Christian, this morning, are you living in that today, in the hope of the resurrection? Some days we do not, if we're honest with ourselves. Did you fully this week, perfectly, live in light of the hope of, re of the resurrection? If you're married, just ask your spouse. You will get an honest report. So this morning, beloved, let's get renewed in God's word. Let's rejoice in the sufficiency of Christ alone, which includes his resurrection. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. It's on page 903 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. 903 will help you to have a copy of God's word open in front of you if you're following along this morning. Let me give a little background as we get into the passage. Mark highlights the uh, Jesus' extraordinary authority as the Son of Man, Son of God, uh, the one proclaimed from the Old Testament, the fulfillment of, the, of those titles. 
and it reveals that he has the promised Messiah who would not first conquer the Romans, but suffer and die as an atoning sacrifice for sins, just as the Old Testament had foretold. The context of Roman, excuse me, of Mark chapter of Mark chapter fourteen is Holy Week, where Jesus enters Jerusalem on a mule, as, as only Messiah would do according to the Old Testament. Jesus has been blowing the disciples' minds and all those who could hear him. He condemns the temple, Herod's temple, uh, where they, uh, they're in Jerusalem, and he predicts its eternal destruction for the wicked thing that it has become. The leaders have made it a place for them to hide in their thievery and extortion of the people. And so Jesus also promised the offensive desolation of Jerusalem so that the disciples would know when to get out. He tells them it's coming, and he prepares future disciples for the ongoing time of tribulation that the church would know throughout the ages until he comes in glory. And Jesus' first disciples will know when to get out of Jerusalem, but he says no one would know the hour or the day when Christ would come to judge the world. And so now we see after he, in, in his cursing of the fig tree, paired up with his cursing upon the temple, and him announcing to them of judgment to come, we now see him alone with the disciples observing the Passover and much more. And so that brings us to his words there near in this particular context. Mark 14, verse 27 and 28. Look with me at God's word. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Here's the central point this morning, beloved. Christ alone is qualified to save. Christ alone is qualified to save. And so if that is true, and it is, then he is the one who's also qualified to help us think and act and live today and live in preparation for his coming again. So Christ alone is qualified to save. Point number one is therefore you're in your bulletin. The significance of Passover is in Jesus. The significance of Passover is in Jesus. What if someone told you that your life is in serious danger from some threat of disease or an enemy of some kind? What if they then told you that the threat is well-earned by you, but they told you at the same time there's one clear escape? In order for you to understand this clear escape, you have to see that you are truly, well, exiled, scattered, separated. But the rescuer will bring you home and will provide healing. Well, I hope we will, we in those circumstances have the sense to hear the truth. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away. The verb translated fall away can have a variety of senses, including cause to fall or stumble. And it's best understood, though, in context as Jesus actually defines it. Under the pressure of the circumstances that are coming, the Son of Man is going to be arrested, going to be handed over. He's going to be crucified. Under the pressure of the circumstances, disciples will scatter, will be made to stumble, cause to abandon Jesus and his cause. You will fall away. And the backdrop of this entire story, though, you cannot separate it. It's from the Feast of Passover. Let's start putting it together. 
It was a time of thanksgiving for God's miraculous deliverance of the Hebrews out of bondage in Egypt. Remember that? Exodus, you can read about it, Exodus chapter 12. Wrath fell upon Egypt and it passed over all who were covered by the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost. Jesus says his words of preparation to them in this context. The Passover having its true meaning in him. Over and over again, Jesus has told them he's going to die as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist called Jesus right there when he first set eyes on him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That meant Jesus was spotless, without sin. If you're the Lamb of God, qualified to take away the sins of anyone on earth. And here it is unthinkable to the disciples, though, that Jesus would, would die why can't Jesus just usher in God's new kingdom now, they think? And the answer is that none of them could receive the new kingdom in its unfolding unless he goes first to the cross to pay for their sin. In the Exodus, God summoned Israel into a covenant with relationship with himself. And we know that Israel got the divorce from that covenant they wanted, which ended in exile because of their ongoing sin and unfaithfulness. But however, the prophets, if you know your Old Testament, declared a greater exodus to come, one far superior than one that was led by Moses, where Messiah, through Messiah, God would establish a new covenant with them. Moses preached it, and the prophets proclaimed that in the Old Testament. In establishing this new agreement, this new covenant, God's people, though, would not be marked by an outward physical sign first but through one of the heart, an inward transformation. They would be marked by a change of the heart, by the sovereign choice of God to regenerate and save some from every people group established upon the blood sacrifice of Christ Jesus. So don't miss this. Jesus fulfills these prophecies, and when the disciples fail and they're scattered, he too will regather them. That gathering language should, should sound familiar to you from the prophets. I will gather you. Jesus will be the new covenant to them and any who come to him for salvation and inclusion in God's people. Isn't that sweet thinking about how Christ is gathering his people in love? Friends, what is your hope in life and in death? We all live from the heart. What are you living for today? What do you think is really going to last? You know, maybe it's in being male or female. It's, maybe it's in being uh, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Jewish, you name it. Maybe it's your culture, your ethnicity. Maybe that's your whole identity is wrapped up in that. But let me say, no earthy, earthly identity can sustain you. Because why? We're all sinners. All of us, all of us, all of our backgrounds have aspects of them that can't stand up under scrutiny and certainly not under the scrutiny of God. Our good works are not good enough because they've all been tainted by pride and to promote ourselves in this self-promotional age, you know what I'm talking about. In the presence of God, we cannot boast. He says our works, our righteousness are as filthy rags to him because we do it for ourselves. We don't do it for him. We do it so we might boast to him about you owe me, God. And he doesn't owe us anything but judgment, according to the Bible. 
Because there is no one righteous, no one perfectly righteous in his sight. God is holy. We are not. He says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and there is no one who seeks God. Not as he is. Because the Bible says all, that's all of us, have turned away from God. All have become worthless as it pertains to being image bearers. There is no one who does what is good in his sight, not even one, not up to his standards. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are not good like the world tells us we are. We are not gods, but goons. We are not light, but darkness. We are not loving, but lovers of self. We are, we are not idols, but idiots in our sin. That's who we are in reality. That's what the Bible says. And if you take a good long look in the mirror, in the, mirror, in the word of truth, you know it's the truth. You know yourself to be an idol worshiper, namely worshiping of yourself. We want the world to conform to us as if we created it. And God's word tells us there's one God. There's one creator. And there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We are slaves to sin, Jesus says. And we like it until God sets us free by the Holy Spirit. We could never free ourselves from sin or our rebellious heart or our rebellious will. We have no superpower of the will to liberate us from our blindness, from our deafness, and from death in sin. We cannot do it. The question, though, is, are you aware of your need for God's mercy? Do you see that you need his, um, his just wrath not to sit upon you, which it does right now, but to pass over you in Christ? On that cross, wrath was given to Christ And mercy and forgiveness is given to any and all who repent and trust in him. Christ alone is qualified to save. Number two, point number two, the scattering fulfills prophecy. The scattering, look at the text, fulfills prophecy. Notice how the CSB, that's the Bible that we use here, the translation we use, it puts the text, puts text in bold print. That means it's quoting the Old Testament and the reference is in the footnotes. You can see how it quotes from Zechariah. You see, Jesus' death anticipated by Jesus himself. But Mark shows the scattering of the disciples after his death was also known and predicted. Why did Jesus cite Zechariah 13? Well, Zechariah 13 foretold that a fountain bringing, think about, get the vision, a fountain bringing cleansing would open through the Messiah, the land would be cleansed of the unclean spirit, and this would bring people back into fellowship with God. But this would all come about through the striking of the shepherd, Israel's Messiah. Jesus emphasizes that God will indeed strike the shepherd so that the servant of the Lord can bear away the sins of many. Only the Messiah can endure this moment in God's un folding plan. Only one can go through this. Only one can endure this. Only one can provide salvation. His name is Jesus the Christ. The future of Jesus's movement depends entirely on God's direct intervention, not on the disciples' individual bravery. Mark's account demonstrates that the death of Jesus was not a catastrophe that overtook Jesus, but rather, stay with me, hang in there, grasp this, grab onto it, It was something for which he had long prepared. 
Jesus emphasizes that it is God who will strike the shepherd so that the servant of the Lord can bear away the sins of many. Jesus is both shepherd, king, and servant. And only the Messiah can endure this moment in God's unfolding plan. Jesus' disciples will desert him. The scriptures have foretold it. He tells them. He tells them. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Just to be clear, Jesus knew, had everything under control, and he knew everything was under control. So Mark portrays Jesus' last night before his crucifixion as the time of eschatological, last day's testing predicted by Zechariah. And Jesus shows us again that God's providence is superintending all things. Friends, we should be humbled unto praise this morning because God rules over all things, even the sinful choices of men. Providence means that God has not abandoned the world that he created, but that rather he works within that creation to manage all things according to the immutable counsel of his own will. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. His plan will prevail. His sovereign will will prevail. There is such a thing as real history. The flow of human events is going somewhere as opposed to being merely static or without meaning. Young people, the world would have you to think that your life really has no meaning other than you living for yourself. Let me ask you something. As the world embracing that, how's that working out for them? How's that, how's that going? Has it brought less anxiety, less confusion? Has it brought more peace and stability? In the prophet Jonah's case, you know that story in the Old Testament. The flow of history led to his own eventual, though reluctant, missionary work and then to the conversion of the people of Nineveh. In the larger picture, history flows onto the glorification of God in all his attributes, primarily in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of the Lord superintending, his providence is captured in the definition found in the old Westminster Confession of Faith, which reads, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and mutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Well said, Westminster Divines. Now, this should provoke us to praise church. Praise the Lord that even while our country is tearing itself apart in gender dysphoria, politicians who double speak, TikTok disciples people into stupidity, and abortion is championed as mercy somehow, do not forget this, our God reigns. He will use what people intend for selfish and perverse purposes to the praise of his name, either in their salvation or in their judgment. So the application is here for the anxious today. We are instructed to focus on what God is doing in our own circumstances. We're not to become obsessed about what either man or nature may be doing. Some of, some of you maybe need to have a fresh commitment this week to unplug from your devices and plug more into your Bibles. We may not at first recognize God's footprints, but believe that they are there and be assured in our lives that he is working out his perfect purpose in the midst of the chaos around us. 
That's the, that's the benefit of being a Christian. The world doesn't see themselves in chaos until they come around some believers and they see there's some kind of created order about your life that's not present in their own. Are you that kind of believer? Is your life reflecting that? It should. Amen? Amen. You know, the, you know, friends, look at mankind. We call ourselves wise, but God shows us to be fools. We call ourselves on the right side of history, but God shows us we're on the right side of his wrath. We call ourselves self, we, uh, self-actualizing, but God calls us self-destructive. We celebrate pride, but God celebrates humility and gives grace to the humble. We pursue authentic self, but Jesus says, deny yourself. Oh man, we have a separate message, don't we? So if people think we're strange, that's okay. We should be, there should be some strangeness there. Not creepy strange, okay? Just general strange. We think that we are ruling, but God says he is in the heavens reigning. If God superintended the death of Christ for us, we can trust he will bring all things together for his people's good and for his glorious praise. Amen. As Mark presents the story, the disciples cannot stand here on their own strength until God, until God has accomplished his purpose in the Christ. So Jesus, therefore, must go it alone. There's something about that idea that should strike us. We can't even begin to fathom the aloneness he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane or what he felt on that cross when he said, when he fulfilled David's prayer in the Psalms, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's something so precious about him stepping away from us and going to that cross alone. He must go it alone. We could none save ourselves or inherit the kingdom because we're sinners. Only after his death on the cross and his resurrection, by God's power, will the disciples have strength enough to take up their own cross and follow him. Christ alone is qualified to save. Number three, the supernatural authenticates Jesus' work. The supernatural authenticates Jesus' work. That's why Jesus did miracles to begin with. Just to authenticate who he was. And so verse 28, we see the supernatural, but after I have risen. Jesus says, after I have been caused to return to life, God raised Jesus from the dead. The Old Testament said this would happen in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53. Jesus said it repeatedly. So he unashamedly was clear on himself being one with God. He declared himself as God when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. I am. That's what God said to Moses. Who will I say, Lord, sent me? Tell tell them, I am. Jesus said, I am. And they wanted to kill him right then because they knew good and well what Jesus meant when he said that. You and I, you and I are not I am. You and I are I am what I am. You and I are what we are by design. You know, it don't matter how much I can say I identify as a person with a full head of hair. 
The reality is, I am what I am. I am follically challenged. I am what I am. I didn't choose it. We don't choose our birthplace or our families. We were created. And Jesus, being truly God, is self-existent in his divine nature. He is I am. We are what we are. He is I am, self-existent, self-sufficient. Only God could endure God's wrath on the cross for our sins. And only God can raise him from the dead to ascend back to the glory as our high priest. And so, of course, for the fifth time in this book, Jesus predicts his resurrection. Talk about backing up what you've said. What a Savior. You and I can make promises we hope to keep. Jesus keeps all of his promises. It speaks to the fact of how he he spoke it to him multiple times. The fifth time, at least just right here, that we have recorded that he told them about this. J.C. Ryle helped me out so much here. Think with me, church. They heard of it frequently with the hearing of the ear, but it had never made an impression on their hearts. That tells you that our own natural hearing needs help, right? And what an exact picture we have of, of human nature. How often we see the very same thing among professing Christians today. How many truths we read year by year in the Bible and yet remember them no more than if we had never read them at all. How many words of wisdom we hear in a sermon heedlessly and thoughtlessly and live on as if we've never heard them. In the days of darkness and affliction come upon us, suffering comes into our lives, and then we prove, you know, unarmed and unprepared. So, Pastor Garrett, what should we do? We should pray. We should pray for quick understanding. Lord, help my mind. Help my heart. Help my soul. Help my spirit to understand and to hear your word. You open your Bible. Before you open that Bible and just get to reading, stop and pray. We are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. So let's search in every part of it and not lose any precious truth in it for lack of cares. And so in doing that, we lay up a good foundation. We make preparation. We give ourselves a daily heads up against the time to come and in sorrow and sickness be actually armed and prepared when those times come. Friends, do you see that, that that you need to wake up every day and renew your mind? You know, you ever feel like your mind's like that, uh, like that washcloth that you've did some scrubbing with, and then like you go running underwater, like, oh my goodness, you're wringing it out. That was in there. Oh my. And put fresh water in it. That's what our minds need. Need wringing out and renewed every day. I mean, think about it. Don't you need to every day refresh and renew your mind in the words, after I have risen. And today, this day, renewing our minds with, he is not here, he is risen. Our minds are prone to corruption, not goodness. Our spirit grows faint. Our bodies hurt. Amen? Some of us hurt this morning. 
But praise God, he is risen. I mean, I can be prepared to face illness and persecution and discouragement because I know my Redeemer lives. Notice in the text, after his resurrection, Jesus will gather them in Galilee. Not Jerusalem, in Galilee. Isn't that interesting? Place, you know, starts, place where they would go out from there. Jesus will go ahead of them. Dr. David Garland highlighted that means, uh, that means which, um, it doesn't mean that he will first, it doesn't only mean he will first arrive in Galilee or walk ahead of them on the road. It also implies he will resume his shepherding role, leading them and calling them together. You can't help see how this points to Jesus as always our trailblazer and great leader unto eternal life, not to just Galilee. John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I... Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. You know the way to where I am going. I am the way, Jesus said. So don't miss this in light of the, the scattering and, and denial of, of the, of the uh, disciples. All readers can infer that Jesus' resurrection not only defeats the powers of death, but also can overcome, don't miss this, human failure. It heralds the chance for all to begin anew. How comforting, beloved, to know that when we feel so defeated and even defiled by our sins, and we feel that shame that the world tells us to not be ashamed of, you better listen to that. Listen not to the world, but to listen to your conscience. How comforting is to know that when we feel so defeated, sad and ashamed about how not good we are, our Lord's victory over sin and death offers us a new beginning. You and I can't offer ourselves a new beginning. We can't go you know, remake ourselves no matter what they say. We're all still decaying. You get all the remake, re, uh, remakes you want to make physically. I've seen those people who do that. It doesn't go so well. You, everything still starts dropping. We need to be remade by God inwardly. Jesus offers us a new start. His resurrection from the dead gives all new meaning to his mercies are new every morning. Did you mess up this week? Are you overwhelmed with maybe how maybe you lost your cool? Or you said something to someone you're like, I cannot believe I said that. Or you wandered and wandered and wandered deep into the internet in a way you know you shouldn't have. Or you got it, gave in to gossip. Or you began to feed bitterness. Or you have not confronted, you are flat out envious of others. And today you're feeling that sense. If you're dealing with that, you, the world says, look at yourself. God's words don't look at you, look to Christ. You want to feel, you want to know cleanse and forgiveness of your sins? Come to Christ. You have to repent, though. You have to take God's side against you and your sin and say, I need mercy. Change me. Forgive me. I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who was raised from the dead for my salvation. 
who died for me. There is a satisfying, some of, some of you enjoy these little quirks about the text. There's a satisfying symmetry in 27 and 28. Look at the text again. The striking of the shepherd results in the scattering of the flock, but the resurrection will result in their regathering. Did you see that? Those two juxtaposed features of the text. Isn't that, isn't that fun? Yeah. You need to see that every day when you get up. He was raised to gather me to himself, to walk in newness of life. Well, let me conclude. Friends, if you don't know Christ, repent and believe in him today. He loves you. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you. Come to him. Ask for his forgiveness. Seek him. And if you're a believer today, remember he was raised for you. Remember it afresh for your, your encouragement of the soul today in this sinful world and dealing with your own sinful flesh. And today, confess to one another, brothers and sisters, why you neglect, why your neglect of living in light of his resurrection has fed anxiety. That's a, that's a good Christian conversation. You know what? My anxiety's been up. You know why? I haven't been living in light of his resurrection. I'm just like the disciples, just as anxiety-ridden as they are because I'm not focused on He's risen. He's not here. He's risen. Spend time in prayer, brothers and sisters, over the glories of his resurrection. Pray it alone. Pray it with your families today. And in so doing this, you'll be living with a heads up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. Everything in this world disappoints us, especially ourselves. We, we can't even live up to our own expectations of others. But Jesus, you have never failed and you never fail. Everything about in your word, Lord, we found to be true. You teach us about yourself and we learn about ourselves. And today, Lord, we are freshly reminded of the glories of your salvation and the strengthening power of your resurrection. Lord, help us to live as those who have true hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.